And it is that time for the Jack Riccardi Show. But before we go to Jack, special announcement. <coughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jack, Jack Riccardi. Riccardi. Happy birthday to you. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> Is Jack That was still like there? a barbershop quartet. <laughs> That's what we were going for. I'm not sure except if we hit the, it. <laughs> except the barbershop is on Austin Highway. But um, <laughs> that was, uh, no, I mean, thank you very much. That was very nice of you both. Um, I hope we have that on tape because I feel like I could use that later. I hope we don't. Or, <laughs> Wonder, wonder both of you. But thank you. Thank you, Christian. That was very nice. Yeah, you I, was got saying, it, buddy. I was saying on my video today, um, the good news about the, day, the, the, the age we live in is that with social media, the average schlub like me can get more birthday greetings than the most famous human being would have gotten like 30 or 40 years ago, right? I mean, you just get gazillions of them. Oh, yeah. Social media makes anything happen. But the but for me, for people like me that just want to get through the day, I'm not making it. It's not a big deal for me. I don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, it's 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 tough because I wouldn't have told anybody, and uh, there's no getting away from it. You know, with social media, everybody knows. So, well, Jack, we talked about that. We're like, you know, Jack wouldn't make a big deal out of this on his own. So we'll step in. That's how it went. Thank you. <laughs> my my plans are foiled. <laughs> yeah, right. no, I, it's we'll not that I hate it. birthdays or anything. I just don't. Um, you know, it's just a, another day for me. I just just a regular day. I'm I'm glad to be alive. You know, I'm glad I was born, but uh, I'm not wearing like a special hat and having cake or anything. So I was going to say, have I mean, some can, cake later on and have a great day. That's all I you can, can wear. Do. A special hat and have cake anytime, yeah. <laughs> and then so, post um, it to social media. <laughs> <laughs> right there, you go. I never quite got the um, idea of blowing out the candles, though. You know, could, you get human spit all over the cake. Why would you want to eat the cake? Spoken after like the. Spoken like the germaphobe you are, Mr. Cooper. Exactly. That's, Cooper ruined the whole thing. Just ruined it all. <laughs> to everyone else, it's a birthday party to Don Cooper. It's a, it's, a, it's a pandemic waiting to happen. Oh, my God. Why'd you do that? All right. Well, anyway, um, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I, I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed. I love what I do. But I watched the president on 60 Minutes, and I think, you know what? I think I could do his job. I, I do. Um, and I don't mean, like, be president the way I would be president. I mean, if you watched that thing, you could have done the interview he should have done in your sleep. The big topics were the pandemic, inflation, and, and they got into Taiwan. And, and, and people are today are, are reacting and parsing the answers. But I just want to step back and say, it's unbelievable how bad he is at this. You know, there's talking points. There's there's an entire team of people in the White House that do nothing but messaging and communications. And that gets down to the senators and the Congress critters and candidates and everyone up and down the Democratic ballot has these talking points. And, of course, the Republicans do talking points for their people as well. And when they're in the White House, they have this same operation going in, in, for their president. But it's like everyone got them except Joe Biden. He does not know what Joe Biden is doing. Joe Biden can't explain the Biden administration's policies. He doesn't, he's unfamiliar with them, has never heard of them. So when he said the pandemic is over and Scott Pelley's face fell off, 
The significance of that is incredible. Because just a few weeks ago, the whole rationale for student loan forgiveness, the whole rationale for asking for tens of billions of emergency dollars was the ongoing emergency. But this guy's message yesterday was the pandemic is over. And he even seemed to realize it after he said it because he said something like, it's still, it's still uh, difficult. There's still difficulty. But the pandemic is over. I mean, the whole thing was like, uh, you know, they had to do emergency crisis cleanup. It was like, get FEMA. You know, they're bringing in bottled water, sandbags. You have to know that they burned the midnight oil last night into this morning, getting ready to go on all the cable stations, all the morning news programs to walk back the COVID comment. So we'll talk about that. And then inflation, um, He his answer was um, harsh. I mean, you could admit the truth that we have the highest inflation in 40 years and we have a plan for it. I mean, I, that's what I would say. You know, I would say, yeah, you know, we all know it's there. There's no hiding it, no hiding from it. Um, maybe rattle off a few prices to show that you know them. And then you um, you talk about what you're going to do. You hope that people won't realize that you caused it, because a lot of people don't know that. They think that it happens like the weather, you know. But all inflation is a function of government uh, economic policies. That's the only thing that can cause inflation, because only the government can put more uh, currency into an economy. But instead, he took the approach that it's just not so bad. It's it's just an inch, he said. Let me play that cut for you. Uh, Was that uh, cut number five, Don? I think cut number five. Listen to this. Mr. President, as you know, last Tuesday, the annual inflation rate came in at 8.3%. The stock market nosedived. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? Well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just just an inch, hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it is good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not, maybe I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2%. It's It's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that, but guess what we are? We're in a position where for the last several months it hasn't spiked. It has just barely, it's been basically even. And in the meantime, we created all these jobs and, and prices have, have gone up, but they've come down for energy. The fact is that we've created 10 million new jobs since we came to office. We're in a situation where we, the unemployment rate is about 3.7%, one of the lowest in history. We're in a situation where manufacturing is coming back to the United States in a big way. So um, I'm not sure if he doesn't understand how inflation works, but maintaining it at 8.3% is not a win. That would be like if the COVID death toll at the worst moment of the pandemic had been the same for, you know, last month as it was for the month before, 
you wouldn't say, oh, man, we're killing this thing. Pardon the pun. So his answer on inflation is it's it's high, but at least it isn't going higher. And, um, you know, you hear a man that doesn't have to live with it, doesn't isn't affected by it, uh, very thin-skinned about asking for it. I get it. <laughs> but if you're paying these prices, you don't care that, oh, well, it didn't go up from July to August. It's too damn high. And even Scott Pelley, the question is so slanted. What could you be doing better and faster? Which implies you're doing great, but could it even be better than it is? Your response? I mean, come on. And then Taiwan. Uh, you know, um, the policy under multiple administrations is we're not going to say what we would do. This is what enables U.S. presidents to meet with Chinese presidents. This is what enables the diplomatic relations that were reestablished when Carter was in, in, I think, 78 or 79. This is what um, makes the ambiguity over Taiwan so difficult for Taiwan, but also the door is open, right? Like, we're not saying what we would do. We're not saying what we wouldn't do. He comes out and says, well, of course, uh, if they attack, we will defend the island. Cut number four. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago. And that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. <laughs> Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces the, would the, defend the Taiwan. The U.S. just said. That is the U.S. saying it. And look at Pelly like he works for the, the White House, cleaning it up, not even, not even letting it hit the news and let the reactions occur. He, I'll, I'll fix this right here, he says. So I guess if you're CBS News, um, you're, you know, you're, you're in on this, right? Like you're, you're helping do the, uh, cleanup on, on aisle seven. But, um, it, it's bad either way. The, the ambiguity thing is the policy. So you've just changed the policy. Does anyone know that? Do the commanders, uh, in, in the theater know that? Uh, do, do our, uh, does our, did our embassy staff in Beijing know that? Because you've just changed the policy, right? Or even worse, you haven't changed the policy and Joe Biden doesn't know the policy. Remember Robert Gates, who served as Secretary of Defense under Bush 43 and Obama, said that in all his years in D.C., he had never seen anybody who was more wrong more often on foreign policy than Joe Biden. And I think that's probably true. So, I'd like to think if I was president, I'd be a, a different president. But if I was going to be Joe Biden, if you were going to be Joe Biden, you could be a better Joe Biden than Joe Biden. He seems not, I mean, we, we all know that somebody else is running things. 
But shouldn't they at least let him in on it, like tell him what they're doing? Is he getting this stuff and just not retaining it? Is he not getting it? What is the thinking in putting him on TV? Because unless you're already a staunch partisan Democrat, that was a bleep show. I mean, that was all over the place. And, uh, you know, good thing Scott Pelley was there to clean it up on the spot. Give him a mop and a, a mop and a dustpan. Our question on the JR poll and phone lines are open for it. Uh, the president says the pandemic is over. Agree or disagree? By the way, white, hot, panic, meltdown, pearl-clutching, skirt-over-the-head, fury on MSNBC that he would say this. It's like he said the worst, most obscene phrase. To, for them to, to hear him say the pandemic is over, this would be like if, if you'd heard Ronald Reagan say, uh, you know, Viva Castro. <laughs> I mean, it's just they're, they're, they're beside themselves with rage and fury at Biden. But look, is it over? I mean, it is over, right? I mean, it's over in that you and I are living our lives and we're moving past it. We're, we know it's out there. It's not saying a pandemic is over is not saying the disease or virus is over. These things will all exist somewhere in nature. They always will. And you're going to do whatever you deem necessary for you to do. I mean, if you're, if that means getting the booster or if that means, uh, you know, avoiding certain situations or whatever that is, whatever you're doing, you do you. But the pandemic is over in the sense that people are no longer organizing their lives around it. They're no longer waiting to be told what they may do. They're not letting government deem what is and is not a non-essential business. Now, I'm, I'm telling you, they're, they're frantically amending and walking that back right now. Well, it's not exactly what he meant. He didn't mean it literally. Blah, blah, blah. No, he said it. That's a guy that is going off the cuff. In his mind, it's over. That means when you see him making announcements like the student loan thing, he knows that's a crock. When you see him putting on the mask and taking it off, and by the way, he always has it on where he doesn't need it and takes it off where you would need it. But you, you, that's all an act. That's all his him trying to please his handlers. And his handlers are not happy with him today. They are not even talking to him today. So what do you think about that? Pandemic is over. 210-599-5555. The Archbishop of San Antonio, who I respect, and I don't mean this to sound like I don't, uh, felt he needed to say something yesterday about the recent uh, busloads and plane loads of illegal immigrants being sent to sanctuary cities. And he said this, Texas is not overwhelmed by refugees. We are a big state. Comprehensive immigration reform is urgent. This was all on Twitter, by the way. Our leaders are doing sick actions without doing without doing little on the issue. I think he means with doing little about the issue. The problem is not the refugees. It is leaders that cannot accept we are one with humanity, said the Archbishop of San Antonio. Okay, 
Um, he does know that the federal government has been flying and busing exponentially more illegal immigrants north, east, and west for months, right? He, he knows that. Like, the, the, the total number of people Abbott has moved is a fraction of the number of middle-of-the-night flights that the U.S. government has launched to cities all over, no advance warning, way more people. They're not giving um, emergency relief to those places once the, 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 the hordes unload. Okay? So I, I hope he knows that. Somebody should tell him. I think it would be important. If he's going to express opinions about this, I think it would be important for him to know that it's the, it's the policy of the current administration to move people around the country. I don't know what he means by Texas is not being overwhelmed by refugees. If they were evenly distributed to all 254 counties, that might be one thing, but clearly they're not, right? How, how can you look at the video, just the raw video? I'm not, I'm not saying any comments or commentary. Just the raw drone video on the border. What is not overwhelming and heartbreaking and uh, completely out of control about that? And then this we're one with humanity thing. You would think we were busing them and flying them to a, a, a meteor out in outer space. Is there not humanity in New York and Massachusetts and Illinois? Aren't there humans there, too? If you believe that some people care more about these human beings than others, then aren't we flying these folks to the places where the people who care are? At least that's what they keep telling us. The, the places where these folks have been bussed and flown are populated by the people that tell the world they care. We care. We're a sanctuary. We would love to help, they've been saying, now they've been given the chance, and they can't, get them, they can't wash their hands of them fast enough. It doesn't look like they were as excited to be sanctuaries as they said they were. Did they never really mean it, or did they find out that actually doing it is a lot harder than saying it? Like, you can say you're a sanctuary, but being a sanctuary is kind of hard work. I am one of those, and I'm not the only one, and there's people across the political spectrum who've said this. The move uh, of Abbott and Governor Ducey and Governor DeSantis to send these people north is a genius move because nothing has more clearly illustrated the hypocrisy and the, the empty words of sanctuary than this. So we've argued about sanctuary cities for years. We've debated it on the radio. We've talked about but. It's been completely humiliated by events. I mean, it isn't. It's it's a it's a beatdown. If this was a fight, they'd stop the fight. I I respect him as a religious leader. I am a Catholic. Um, he does not speak for me, and I don't think he speaks with very much clarity on this issue. I, I I'm not sure that this is anything other than. Um, he would like them here, and he doesn't like them there. And to be honest, that's an opinion. That's not a policy. 
And I don't know what sick actions he's referring to because in every um, major humanitarian operation where there's been a massive influx of refugees or after World War II when there there were were millions of people completely homeless and just starving and and wandering around war-torn Europe, you, you you didn't say to those people, it's never been done this way. Well, you can just hang out wherever you want. If you're going to organize a thing like this, you're going to put the people where you put them. You're going to move them where you where you can move them. You're, you're, you're not going to let them decide. This is not tourism. And so I don't know what's sick about it unless he thinks that every reaction in history to major um, influxes was sick. 210-599-5555 to get into any of the things we've been talking about. And um, our JR poll, uh, President Biden says the pandemic is over on 60 Minutes. Do you agree or disagree? And Dan is on the radio. Hi, Dan. Hey, Jack. Did I hear it's your birthday? I, I, uh, mm-hmm. that, I've heard something to that effect, but uh, I don't know. So if it is happy birthday, I love Thank your show. You. I Thank always you. look forward to it. Appreciate your show that. is amazing. Uh, well, two things. I think we should send some of these immigrants to Montevista. I used to live in Montevista, and Montevista is full of lefties. Uh, when I would walk with my uh, Trump hat or my MAGA hat, I would get some horrible looks. I thought they were about acceptance. But re- regarding the um, the pandemic, uh, if it is, if it is over, uh, first of all, I think there was never a pandemic. It was a pandemic. But uh, then he should stop requiring international legal travelers from getting the vaccine to come into the U.S. I'm a proud U.S. citizen, so I don't need it to come back. But I flew in from Guatemala last week. And at the counter in the airport in Guatemala, I overheard some uh, Guatemalans and even some Europeans that were flying to, you know, from Guatemala through the States. They needed to uh, show their vaccine card. So if you really think it's over, that should be the end. So the funny thing is you can walk into the States through the border, you know, illegally, no vaccine requirement. But if you want to fly in or drive legally, then you need a vaccine. I mean, we need to right. explain that and then it should be over. So that's that's my comment, Jack. I love your show. Oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, well, you know, it. It can't be over for these people because they've predicated too much on it. Too much of what they're doing is is balanced on, there's a pandemic going on, you know. I mean, they don't have to say it anymore. But when they do, for example, uh, they justify something like student loan forgiveness. But even when they don't actually say it, so much of what they are doing is based on this idea. So with this statement, he has, you know, cut the legs out from under. It's like a low hit on a quarterback, right? I mean, he's, he has totally toppled um, their negotiating position with the teachers' unions, the student loan forgiveness, the travel restriction. I mean, it could go on and on. But, but more importantly, I, and I agree with all, all of that. I agree with everything Dan said. But what really kind of blows me away is anyone else noticing that the president of the United States doesn't know his own policies? You know, it's one thing for a 79, almost 80-year-old man to to lose his place in a sentence or forget a name. That's okay. But these are his, supposedly, his policies. And even if they're not, even if these are Susan Rice's policies or 
Barack Obama's policies or Michelle Obama's policies or Sasha Obama's policies. Could he not have... You're, you're doing an interview on 60 Minutes. You've got the king of the underarm, underhand softball, Scott Pelley, asking questions like, could you be even better than you are? And, um, and you know... Just, like, memorize a few talking points or have an index card on your lap or, or something. Or borrow uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre's, you know, binder. She's not using it on Sunday. But I, I don't know what... I don't even know where to begin with that. So I've seen presidents be good or not-so-good salesmen of their own administration's policies and positions. Trump wasn't always a great explainer of what they were doing. But he seemed to have no familiarity with it at all. Doesn't know the policy toward Taiwan, which has been the policy since he was a young senator. Doesn't know uh, how inflation works. It's not good when you have two months in a row at 8.3. That's not a, a win. And the pandemic is over is literally the opposite of everything the Democratic Party is teaching and preaching right now. I believe it was just... I believe we played the clip. I think it was just last week. St. Fauci said it's not over yet. So the, the dissonance here is spectacular. 210-599-5555. And Diana is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Diana. Hi, Jack. Happy birthday. Oh, Great thank show. you. Thank you. Thank I you. just wanted to you because we've been sidetracked on this not in my backyard um don't fly those people up here what the sanctuary city movement and under trump all these places declaring their states and cities was that they were refused they were sanctuaries for criminals when illegal aliens were found to be prosecuted and put in there or arrested they refused to call ice for Border Patrol to turn them mm -hmm. over to them is even more diabolical. But now we see the other side of it. Not in my backyard. Don't put those brown people in my backyard. Well, this is such a good point you're making, Diana, because, and let me just add on to it. So as somebody pointed out last week, um, when you just run away from the Border Patrol and you escape into the country, we don't know if you're a criminal or not. We don't know if you have COVID or not. We don't know any of that. Um, the people on these planes have been processed, so they're not criminals. Right. And yet, right. and yet, Massachusetts called out the National Guard on them and put them in a military base like it was 1944 and they were Japanese. So what, it's even worse than that. I mean, they're not only not being sanctuary cities in the way, as you point out, they defined it, but they're doing something that they would accuse us of doing. Right. They would be calling in internment. We're, we're putting them in concentration camps if it was yes, Trump. That's the term. Know, or Republican. That's the term. So anyway, that's thank term. you. Good show. Thank you, Diane. Appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Bye -bye. That's very sweet. Thanks. I uh, appreciate you. 210-599-5555. You know, it's, it's um, it, the, the whole idea of the sanctuary city, I think we suspected, was about Donald Trump and there is there there became a a phenomenon along about 2017 where all of American politics became oriented around him, like he was the the axis on which everything turned. And so, 
we weren't discussing things intellectually, legally, constitutionally. You were either with him or against him. And the Sanctuary City movement always had a, 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 a an aroma of differentiating ourselves from Trump. Like we live we live in, in the United States. He's the president, but we're not part of that. You know, we're not party to that. But they didn't have to really do very much about it. They could say it, but it wasn't it wasn't tested. These Republican governors are testing it, and it's failing the test. It's failed the test everywhere. Massachusetts moved them to a military base. Mayor Lightfoot uh, moved them to a Republican suburb of Chicago. The mayor of D.C. is asking for the National Guard as if, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Spetsnaz have landed uh, via, you know, parachute um, on the ellipse. It, it, it's, it's panic. It's degradation. It's not in my backyard. It's the, somebody said last week on MSNBC, these people are the trash. You're leaving your trash on other people's front stoops. Wow. I heard all the sanctuary talk. It was very pretty. But your actions speak volumes. There's a new TV ad for Beto where um, it starts with these two cars parking in a driveway, and there's a big pickup truck with a Trump sticker on it. And you're thinking, what is, what is this a commercial for? Right? And then it turns out to be an ad for Beto, and it's supposedly this husband and wife. I don't know if they're real husband and wife or they're actors, but the deal is um, he's a Trump guy, she's a Democrat, but they're both they're both supporting Beto because he's so reasonable about abortion and and the Abbott position is so unreasonable. And this this guy that looks exactly like Steve Schmidt from the Lincoln Project, the Never Trump guy, <laughs> looks exactly like him. We're supposed to buy that he's a big-time Trump supporter, but we, he says we need Beto. Now, I don't want to say in a state of 30 million people there couldn't be someone, there might be someone, and maybe it's you, who supports Donald Trump and Beto O'Rourke. But do you really think, honestly, is that a, is that a group? Is that like a, a faction? Is that like a, is that like a kind of voter that there's enough of that this could, this could turn the election? Those Trump slash Beto independents or under, you know, it's so over the top, so ridiculous. And um, do you have the ad done? Yeah, play a little of that. Of course, people are going to disagree on the big issues. This is the Democrat. But Greg one. Abbott signed the most extreme abortion ban in the United States. No exception for rape? No exception for incest? $100,000 fines and jail time for doctors? Only 11% of Texans agree with him. I mean, this is a free country. <laughs> we need a governor who gets that. <laughs> hold That's on, hold I mean. on, hold on. Hold on. So, so the guy that supported Trump, who promised to appoint um, Supreme Court justices that would overturn Roe v. Wade, and did... And still has the Trump sticker on his truck. It's not like he's a former Trump supporter. He's still driving around with his Trump sticker. But he's appalled that abortions will be harder to get. What, what an idiot. I mean, what a numbnut, right? I mean, like, you may be a Trump supporter, but you're the dumbest one of them. Because you supported all the things that brought us to the point of the Dobbs decision and the states now passing their own 
laws. Like, you did not have any idea that was going to happen? Like, Trump wasn't clear about that? You didn't abandon him and go over to the other side at that point? But I'm supposed to believe now you would love to see another Trump term, but you want Beto to be the governor. I mean, where did they find the, the, the ad agency? What... What bunch of geniuses came up with this ad? So here's my point about the governor's race. The the Dallas Morning News poll says that Abbott has gotten a bigger lead. But when you look at it, Abbott's numbers actually haven't gone up. He's still under 50%. It's just that Beto's numbers are going down. Um, And so my question is this. I, I don't think Abbott's winning. I just think Beto's losing. In fact, i got to be honest, and I know we don't have many Democrats on our dreadful little show, but you Democrats probably could have won this with a better candidate because there's not a lot of enthusiasm about Abbott. He's not even at 50% in these polls. I haven't seen a single poll where he breaks 50%. So your guy's losing. It's not that the governor is running away with it. Uh, 210-599-5555. We've been talking about the 60 Minutes interview. We've been talking about the... um, Blue State uh, bus loads and plane loads, and Devin is calling in about that on KTSA. Hi, Devin. Hey, how's it going there, Jack? Uh, I heard you talk uh, real quick before I get on immigration. You're right. Beto, if they had to pick somebody better than Beto, they probably wouldn't have had a problem winning. They might have been able to win it, yeah. Yeah, but that's their fault. (laughs) That's their fault. Uh, but um, real quick here, I got a friend. I'm, of course, I'm African American, black, whatever. But I have a friend in Chicago, stone hard Democrat. He used to read me about Trump and what he did was doing with the immigration and how he's trying to build a wall and all their sanctuary cities in Chicago. But yet, the other day when I was saying, "Hey, we're going to send them to y'all next." Or to, no, don't send them to over here. We don't need them here. Don't send them here. I was like, well, I thought y'all took everyone. He says, no, well, there's a section. Y'all are sending us to bad people. I said, you know, it's, no, there's no good or bad about this. This is, these are people that you said you take all of them. He said, no, we don't want them over here. You're, you're a hundred percent right. And like Diana said a few minutes ago, the, the very definition of a sanctuary city is that even if they're criminals, you won't turn them over to ice so i i'm sorry but your your friends like like all these blue staters your friends he's kind of stuck you know oh we have he's stuck on his own words we have real bad arguments well we're friends but we have arguments because i'm not gonna let him tell me that what they do is different than anything that trump did when trump was only trying to help us not hinder us and they just don't want him at all well, all you have to say to him is you wouldn't have to take him. If we had Trump's border policies, we wouldn't have plane loads and bus loads, and you wouldn't have to take him. So that oh, but was... that was too hard on the people, remember? <laughs> and we were caging them and locking them up as criminals. Oh, oh but, but caging them at a military base in Massachusetts is, I guess that's just fine. I mean, oh, you know, I, I guess they're... want to talk about that. Yeah, I guess they're having a great time over there. Hey, Devin, thank you. Appreciate the call, sir. Good, Good to have you on. Uh, Paul is on KTSA. Hi, Paul. Hey, Jack. How's it going? It's going. How are you? Good, good. Hey, so I watched this 60 Minutes interview last night, and uh, so how do I get through to either young people or, or you know, friends who, who watch that interview and see the, you know, the 30-second sound bites and say, hey, Biden's doing great, everything's good with the world. But then 
when I tell him, hey, have you heard about the laptop or, you know, any videos about him, you know, dropping out of the race in 1987 for plagiarism, um, they think I'm crazy. So how do I get through to people without, you know, without getting too argumentative? Pull the, I guess, pull the examples. I mean, pull the, pull the audio of the, you can find on YouTube the news stories from 87 about the plagiarism. You know, I, I don't know how deep you want to go. I'm not sure how seriously you want to take this, but I think people respond to actually hearing the words and seeing the proof. If we, if people like you and me just claim it, you know, they can block their ears and go, la, 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 I don't want to hear this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to get away from the actual words from the man himself, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So, okay. I don't know. That's what I would do. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate having you. I don't want to gloat, but maybe I'm allowed a little gloating on my day. Cooper Rush, not awful. No. Kept him in the game. Defense won the game, but he kept him in the game. Yeah, I'll admit I did not go into this game with, with really a shred of optimism, but then... Yeah, that little voice inside your head saying, you know, last year he had to start a game up in Minnesota for Dak Prescott mm-hmm. when he was hurt. Uh, they won that game late on a touchdown pass to to Amari Cooper, I believe. So it's like you knew Cooper could do it, but would he, you know? I think what I like about him, and I don't want to get too nerdy about football here, but he's a Mac guy. And that's one of those scrappy, you know, if you're not a college football fan, it's one of the lesser conferences, supposedly. Um, and he played at Central Michigan. Yeah. Tough climate. You play outside. There's 25,000 people. Um, th- there's parity in that league. You know, every team is either like seven and five or five and seven. And there's no like cupcake games. There's no games where you run away with it. It's scrappy. It's it's hard nosed. Um, you know, you can be a guy that came off of an Alabama or a Georgia. You can go to the NFL, but you've always been surrounded by all Americans, and now you're surrounded by all pro. But a guy like Cooper Rush, see, he's had to make it happen, which is sort of you know lunch pail guys around him. And so I I'm not surprised that in big moments he just. He has what it takes. It was impressive that the Cowboys scored three points last week, uh, week one. I mean, the offense just did nothing. I don't think they had a red zone penetration, and yet Sunday their first mm. two drives were touchdown mm. drives. And yeah. and it wasn't like they just ran the ball and, you know, Cooper threw it twice. You know, he had to make some big throws, and so yep. we'll see if he can yep. keep it up. But it was impressive. Yeah. All right. Well, um, not so impressive, um, I would say, would be uh, the president on 60 Minutes. Let let me play you a couple of clips and then get your reaction to this. So uh, the president told Scott Pelley that the pandemic is over. And um, this was the part of the interview where they were walking around the Detroit uh, auto show. Now, I think it's over. You, You may think it's over. But it's clearly not the policy of the federal government that it's over and in fact it's not even possible for it to be over if you're going to do things like forgive student loans and then he talked about inflation and uh pelly was almost like apologetic like I, I hate to bring it up you know it was like somebody saying I, I don't mean to embarrass you but you have broccoli between your teeth you know he was like uh well mr president if i if i may um about about inflation and 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 biden was very um snarky about it. Take a listen to this. Cut number five. 
Mr. President, as you know, last Tuesday, the annual inflation rate came in at 8.3%. The stock market nosedived. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? Well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just, uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it is good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not, you're, maybe I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2%. It's, it's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that, but guess what we are? We're in a position where for the last several months it hasn't spiked. It is just okay, barely. So he's not, there's no, not a word to like, hey, uh, I know it's a struggle. Uh, man, have you seen the, you know, seen the price of milk lately? No, there was no like throw a bone to the homemaker that's having trouble with his or her budget. There was none of that. I feel your pain, you know, that Clinton would have done or feigning. Maybe we should be grateful, I guess. Maybe the politicians have given up pretending to be in touch with us and care. You know, none of that. His whole take on this is, you all don't know how good we're doing. We're doing better than you say we are. You're, we're doing better than you think we are. Why, my goodness, we kept it at a very reasonable 8.3% two months in a row. I mean, that's a stunning take. I can assure you that is not their massaged, a focus group tested um, talking point on this issue. Does Joe Biden know what the talking points are for his own administration? Can you imagine a, a Democratic candidate for any office in a room full of voters, like at a town hall event or debate, giving that answer? You'd get you'd be lucky to get out of the room in one piece. And then they got into. Um, Taiwan. And Pelly asked uh, if it would be different than Ukraine, where we have materially supported Ukraine against Russia, but we're not fighting Russia on behalf of Ukraine. Now, this is an easy one. I mean, they were all easy questions. But, like, kids in school know this one. Okay, the, 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 the position of the United States is that it doesn't take a position, it doesn't state a position on defending Taiwan. That may or may not be a good policy. You may not like that. But that's the policy. Until until the 60 Minutes interview. Take a listen. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago. And that there's a one-China policy and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging them being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. I think Pelly is auditioning to replace Corinne Jean-Pierre. And then he comes on with a, with a, like a, like he's on the Golf Channel, he comes down with this hushed voiceover. In actual fact, uh, we'd like to clarify that uh, it is not the policy of the United States. To... Now, I don't know what the the secret behind the scenes back channel talk is. Maybe we've told Taiwan for years that it will be like you know, we'll go in there like it's Normandy. 
I mean, maybe that is something that the leaders of the two countries know. But it's never been said before. And if it's not the policy, or we're not prepared to do it, um, that's stunning. That's not a faux pas. That's a guy that's completely out of touch. He, he's apparently not even in the room when they're talking about this stuff. I've, I've resisted the idea. A lot of people call the show, and they, they're kind of hyperbolic about Biden. You know, he's in a coma, and he's drooling into his pudding. I've, I've tried to resist that. I'm, I'm trying to be reasonable. I, I don't like him. I don't agree with him on anything. But i, I got to say, I'm starting to come around to the idea that I don't even think they're letting him listen in on some of the stuff that they've decided. I mean, he's just, he is expressing opinions like he walks past the White House as opposed to living there. We're talking about the governor's race. I think I think Governor Abbott's going to win it, but I don't think he's going to win it as much as Beto O'Rourke is going to lose it. First, you got to remember how angry Republicans are with Greg Abbott. I mean, they're, they're happy about the, the Greg Hound buses, but before the Greg Hound buses, if you heard this show, you know Republicans were pretty down on him on a lot of stuff. And the whole COVID response was not pleasing, okay? Then, you know, um, he does the Greyhound thing, or the Greg Hound thing, and, and, and people are liking that, and it's easy to see why. But in the meantime, Beto O'Rourke, let's be honest, He's losing this thing more than Greg Abbott is winning it. And um, it makes you wonder, and I'm not saying I want this to happen, but it makes you wonder what the Democrats might have been able to do with just a candidate who's not a child and who's not um, sort of so... He, he To me, Beto O'Rourke is almost like a party of one. You know, he... he He's, he's a member of the Beto party, you know. It's a personality cult. It's a, it's a kind, it's kind of like, it, people that support Beto kind of sound like some of the people that support Trump. Like they can't really say why. They just do. We need him. Says the pickup truck guy in the ad. We just, we just need him. I don't, it doesn't make any sense, but we just need him. Now, one of the things he's been saying lately, Beto O'Rourke, is that gun violence is the leading cause of death among children in America. Gun violence is the leading cause of death among children in America. So um, the uh, blog, The Truth About Guns, did a breakdown on this, and they pulled up the CDC data. And what they found was in the last year for which we have the numbers, there were 2,281 gun-related deaths among children 0 to 17. So if you take out infant mortality, then guns barely beat car accidents as the leading cause of death. But if you look at children 13 to 17, they are the lion's share of the gun-related deaths. And they are more likely to be killed in gang violence, in drive-bys. 
If you look at kids 0 to 12, it's 422, which is still too many, but nowhere near the leading cause of death. And by comparison, far more children drowned in 2020. Far more children suffocated in 2020. Twice as many died in car accidents in 2020. So the number he's using, I think, is meant to play off of Uvalde. It's meant to imply that shootings like that are the leading cause of death among children. But it's an example of really poor math or knowingly cooking the books. He's just not a good candidate. He doesn't have a good case. But I think if the Democrats had picked somebody who actually could tap into kind of the center and didn't make it all about him or her, I don't know who that is. Maybe it's somebody that's not even in the political world. Maybe they, maybe they get a, you know, they get a, uh, an outsider, a business person or somebody, a military person or something. I, I actually think they'd, they'd be given Abbott all he could handle. There's, there's a real lack of enthusiasm for Abbott, and I think it's more, you tell me what you think, I think it's more that Beto's losing than the governor's winning. Uh, we're talking about the governor's race. Um, my theory is that uh, basically Beto is just losing it. Uh, just, you know, he's he's being Beto. Um, he's hit his ceiling, and he does, he's not going to go above that ceiling, which is probably pretty lucky for Greg Abbott, because I, and I'm not... I'm not dogging the guy, but I don't think he would be cruising if he had like a grown-up opponent. That's just my my theory. I know this is a red state, but um, I think Greg Abbott would have all he could handle if he was running against somebody that that had you know made it all the way through adolescence. Um, do you wonder, like I do sometimes, when you see these stories about, I was just reading one this morning, it was about a protest in Virginia over, um, you know, they have that new governor, Glenn Youngkin, who, by the way, is going to run for president. Remember that. You're hearing all this other talk, but Glenn Youngkin's going to run for president because they're term limited to one term. And if he has a successful term and he's one of the most popular governors in the country right now, there's nothing else for him to do. He's going to run for president. So anyway... He's reversed the policies from his predecessor, and you have to use the re- the school restroom that you were biologically matched to. Um, so transitioning, identifying as something else, um, the 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 policy is reversed, and the way the media. And the activist groups are reporting this is that it's an assault on transgender and gender fluid students. You would expect them to say that, and that's what they're saying, right? I watch these things, I read these stories, and and I'm I'm not I'm not picking on anybody, I'm not attacking anybody. I'm a live and let live guy. But the whole framing here is wrong. If you believe that a person should be able to walk into the opposite-sex bathroom. You have to make the case for that. That isn't, well, we all know that's right. That is not normal, and I don't mean that in the, in the, in the gender or sexual sense. That is not the American people's normal. That is not Western civilization's normal. Personally, I hope it doesn't become normal. But if you are advocating for that, 
you don't get to say, this is an atrocity, and this is wrong, and it's like we're... You have to make the case. You're not making the case. You're not persuading John and, and Jane public that boys who feel that they are girls, who feel that they were assigned the wrong gender, should be able to go into the opposite sex bathroom or locker room. So what I'm saying is do the work. Make the argument. I, I, I'll be honest. I don't think you can convince me. You probably don't want to waste your time with me. I'm old anyway. But if that's where you think this country should be, if that's the direction you think society should take, you have to argue for that. They act like we all know that's the right thing. It's just, just this evil Glenn Youngkin that won't let it happen. You see what I mean? They've, and, and, I, and maybe they think they can get away with that, but it's not working. The normals, as Tucker Carlson calls them, I always laugh when he says that, the normals know that's not the way it's supposed to be, or natural, or healthy. So if you want to carry that argument, you've got to make that argument. You know, it's, it's like asserting anything that is outside the, the, the mainstream of thought. If you wanted to say, uh, hey, I think the Houston Texans are going to win the Super Bowl this year. After people stopped laughing, a few of them might say, where in the world, what, where are you getting that? I mean, what, what, in what universe, you know, you'd have to really have a, a well-constructed argument to assert that. I don't know what that would be, but you see what I mean? It's that outlandish to say boys in the girls' room, girls in the boys' room. It's that outlandish. And I'm not, this isn't me even passing judgment on the morality of it. I'm just telling you, that's where people are. That's where the normals, where most of the country are. And see, it's easy to forget that when you only bounce your ideas off of people that agree with you to begin with and think like you to begin with. And we have that in this, in this social media world. We're able to design and zip ourselves up into cocoons where we're never exposed to any kind of, uh, I, I guess you could call it combat of a mental combat, if you will, or, or ideological persuasion. Like, okay, convince me that's right and safe and healthy. You can't just tell me it's wrong that we don't do it. And that's all they have right now. That's the whole thing is, we're protesting. This is wrong. But see, it isn't. If you if you go out to the if you take to the streets, and you are expressing something that's in the hearts and minds of most people, or even a lot of people, that's one thing. But when you take to the streets and say we need to have more drag to, uh, drag queen story hour, that's not you haven't done your work. You haven't laid the the groundwork for that, and that's what I'm I'm amazed by. I almost said drag race story hour. Now, where is that? Where are the drag racers? Why aren't drag racers reading stories to kids at libraries? I'm going to get behind that. Story out of, um, this is uh, research out of Chicago, reported at foxnews.com. Severe common cold cases increasing among children. So we're into cold and flu season now. And doctors are anecdotally reporting uh, kids with more severe head colds, not that they're in, you know, imminent danger. But the theory or the thinking is that these head colds are more virulent 
because children's immune systems were compromised by the amount of time they spent out of circulation. So while they weren't in school, while they were distance learning, in the name of saving them from COVID, uh, an illness that seemed never to be much of a risk for children in the first place, it looks like we probably damaged their still developing immune systems. And um, I remember people saying at the time, you know, medical people, people much smarter than me, were saying at the time, we're going to regret anything we do that sort of interrupts or, or rolls back your immune system. But the president says the pandemic is over. He said that on 60 Minutes. Do you agree with him? I mean, yeah, it is. We've moved past it. Our, we've, we in our lives have put it behind us. We didn't wait for a green light or a declaration. He's, he's the last man in America to, to realize this. But what's interesting about him saying it is it literally cuts the legs out from under his own administration. Uh, And to use just one example, and a number of people have pointed this out today, by declaring that the pandemic is over, um, which, by the way, this administration also said that when they declared Title 42 over back in the spring, they've now made illegal their wealth transfer of hundreds of billions of dollars of student debt to other people. That's what student loan forgiveness is. It's, it's debt transfer. The forgiveness of debt would be, oh, forget it. We're going to pretend it didn't happen. You don't owe me that money. This is transferring the debt. And the only technical basis for that was his Office of Legal Counsel's interpretation of a post-9-11 law called the HEROES Act, which gave the president, or specifically the the executive branch, the Secretary of Education, it gave the executive branch emergency power in a time of quote-unquote national emergency to um, waive uh, debts owed to or incurred against federal programs. And you can imagine after 9-11, maybe the thinking was, you know, dozens and dozens of planes are crashing into major cities and people are fleeing and we're at war and we've got, you know, dirty bombs and anthrax. And Because, yeah, admittedly, there, there was some thought that we were entering into an era of chaos. That's not the case, thank God. We could only, therefore, the only other current emergency would be COVID. And he just said it's over. It's not a pandemic anymore. So I guess he'll announce tomorrow that ixnay on the the student loan debt forgiveness, right? Well, no. Obviously not. 210-599-5555. Speaking of terrorism, which nobody is anymore except me, I read an interesting story over the weekend that talked about the new up-and-coming ISIS guys, and it said that their focus, I'm going to paraphrase this poorly, but the article basically said their, their new, the new generation, if you will, of terrorists is focused on financial networks and creating um, global 
uh, financial and IT chaos. And I could believe that's true, right? I mean, I, I could easily imagine that in an asymmetrical war where you're up against superpowers, viruses and compromising databases and wreaking havoc with with financial exchanges would be a very effective way for a tiny group of people to make the, the, the great Satan, you know, stumble or worse. So I'm reading this, and this is the assessment of, of people that study this stuff, that ISIS is, is re-constituting, you know, it's, it's promoting new leaders. You know, we've killed a number of the senior leaders. And um, the new leaders are going to be different. They're going to be quiet. They're not going to be flashy. They're not going to make videos. We're not going to know their names. And they're going to do this attack on, you know, basically cyber. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, so how much longer am I going to have to take my shoes off at the airport? How much longer are we going to have to put our three-ounce gels and liquids in the Ziploc bags like we're going on the second grade field trip. You know, in other words, isn't it fascinating that we are still, this is 2022. We are still under the edict of our overlords. I mean, at the point of a gun, fighting the last war. We're still Everything we're doing in, in terms of the airport is about the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber. Do you even remember who they were? You can barely remember that. There's people alive today don't even weren't even born when, when the underwear bomber did his thing. You take your kids to the airport, they don't even know why we're doing this. They don't remember the reason. But I wonder how much longer we will be doing things that have no bearing on our current safety and security and the threats as the world really because i'm not saying there's no threat and i'm not saying we should lower our guard but our guard should reflect today and tomorrow we should be on guard about today and tomorrow we're on guard for 2001 2003 2007 does that seem crazy to you and if we move this slowly and over that period of time, we've had Republican and Democratic presidents, and you can't say it's been all one regime, but I guess maybe it has been in a way, but that's what we're doing. There was a guy we used to have on the show a lot, Bruce Schneier, and he had written a book, and he had coined a phrase, a couple of books, I guess, and he had coined a phrase called security theater. And the idea was that a lot of the things that were imposed on us after 9-11 were less about actual security, and the people involved knew it. And they were more about reassuring us, making us feel like... So he, his point was, if they hadn't put National Guardsmen in the airport, people wouldn't have gotten back on the planes. If they hadn't instituted the bizarre rituals by which you go through a TSA checkpoint, it might have seemed to people that we had not responded, that flying wasn't safe. But because we had to do these bizarre, inconvenient, uncomfortable things, it conveyed the idea that, well, they must know something, right? Remember how you would fly and you would, you would say to your companions or your travel mates, boy, they were really touchy or they really were like intense this, this time or at this airport. You'd think, oh, they, there must be a tip. 
And, and you know, I, I'm sure at one point or at some point there were tips or there were even foiled plots. I'm not saying that. But at this point, are we fighting the last war? How ready are we for what they're probably going to do next? And how different is what they're going to do next? Be How different will that be from the stuff they've done before? Because if what I was reading is true, it's not going to resemble anything we saw before. It's not going to be anything like that. And that would make sense, right? You wouldn't keep playing the same, you wouldn't keep running the same play. Okay, they, they, they're onto us with the box cutters and the airplanes and the skyscrapers. Okay, they, they're onto us on that. We've got 999 other things we can do. JR poll question. President Biden tells CBS 60 Minutes, the pandemic is over. Said it twice. Do you agree or disagree? 210-599-5555. They uh, had the funeral for Queen Elizabeth today. <laughs> I was talking to my mom. God bless her. She goes, is it over? <laughs> I said, I think so. I don't know. I mean, once you've had the funeral, I don't know what else you can do. I don't, it, maybe there's more tomorrow. I don't, I don't follow this stuff, but uh, I think it might be over. I remember... Um, the first day that we talked about this, so whatever day it happened, the next afternoon, or maybe the, maybe it happened, maybe it was announced in the morning. I think it was announced in the morning, and we talked about it a little bit that afternoon. And right away, there were people that were. Uh, I, I got two kinds of anger. I got anger from people that didn't want to hear about her, and, and I'm really not a big royal families person, but it, it was a, it was the biggest news story of the day that day. Um, and then there were also people that were angry because you, you, you shouldn't be glorifying and praising this rich, white, privileged, colonialist woman. Okay, whatever. Um, and I said at the time, and I'll, I'll just quickly mention it again, I, I'm not a royal family watcher, I'm not a gossiper, I'm not interested in William and Harry. But the woman that they laid to rest today was a major defender of something that is extremely important to you and me, whether you know it or not. And it's a little something we call Western civilization. Western civilization has been the greatest liberator of people, the greatest uh, economic generator and um I guess you could say, poverty-fighting force. It is why women and people of color and people who are LGBTQ have any traction or rights at all and are getting more. Western civilization is why you and I can have this conversation right now and say the things we're saying about powerful people without recrimination, speak our mind. Western civilization is why you can get an education. It's why you can go to the church of your choice. The um, entire modern history of law and order is a product of Western civilization. Now, Western civilization had its ugly aspects. War, slavery, Colonialism, 
Those were undoubtedly byproducts of Western civilization. But everywhere Western civilization has gone, it has left far more good than bad. And Queen Elizabeth was only the, you know, at the tail end of that. She came to the throne 70 years ago. Her empire was in rapid decline. But she spoke with power and eloquence about the importance of maintaining what was left of Western civilization. All you hear today are angry, bitter voices that want to tear that down. And some of them even wished pain and anguish on her in her final hours, which is disgusting. But the fact is that it's disappearing before our eyes. And we may be able to just grab on to the last bit of it and pull it back out onto deck if we're lucky. But that's, that's the significance of today. So don't, don't think about her or these spoiled brat kids, grandkids she has. Think about this. She was one of the last connections to a civilization that believed in itself, believed in certain basic things. And, and even if you still aren't convinced, be very careful of the people that criticize it. Because if you listen to the vitriol and the hate in their voice, it doesn't sound like they have something better planned for us. It sounds like all vengeance and reparations and score settling. It sounds like everything that you consider dear, like your faith or patriotism, will be mocked and driven out. It sounds like qualities such as bravery, charity, chivalry will be mocked and then thrown away. Everything she represented, they hate. And you've already had a pretty good taste of what they would like to have take its place. The people running this country today are an example. Does it look better to you? Would you would you prefer a civilization based on, I don't know, Stacey Abrams or, or uh, Beto O'Rourke or Gavin Newsom? Are... Is she the monster, this 96-year-old lady who's being laid to rest, or are they? That's why I think this is important. Because you can know a lot about a person by the things they say and the things they do, but you can also know a lot about a person by who's against them. little car news uh, here, Christian. Um, it took just a few hours for the entire 2023 run of the Chrysler 300C to sell out. Really? This is a limited edition. You know, they've canceled the Chrysler 300. Uh, this is the V8 version with all the bells and whistles, the beefed mm-hmm. up brakes and special uh, smart suspension and uh, what have you, 20-inch wheels. Uh, they're going to make uh, 2,200 of them. Took just a few hours. All of them are spoken for. And I was thinking about how in the past, when you look at, at 
the history of the car, every time people thought, well, these will be the last convertibles anyone ever makes, these will be the last muscle cars they ever make, these, it always turns out that it's not. It's kind of like when Motley Crue says, it's our farewell tour. Right. But it's right. Yeah. It's like, that's an even better analogy. Every time a major rock act goes on its farewell tour, you can be sure there's another tour coming. It's really just an extended vacation. And even if the Chrysler people, and maybe, you know, for all I know, maybe they really mean this, but my point is, even if they mean it, these, if these cars are this popular, then they will be made again somewhere by somebody. See, I'm embarrassed to admit here in closing, I thought the Chrysler 300 had been gone. Mm-mm, not yet. Yeah, apparently not. Not yet. But uh, they only came in white, red, and black, and for the record, I would take any of those. Well, I want <laughs> mine. about the color. I want mine in blue, so then what? Well, you know, the funny thing is, they say that all of these will be collector's items. Probably most of these will never be put on the road, but the most expensive one will be whatever color is the rarest so whatever color they made the fewest of will be the the highest price to the collectors it's a good point it will we'll see so your blue one would be the would be the king of the hill yeah uh 210 599 you want to jump in here um i'll be off tomorrow but it's just a scheduling thing and i'll be back on wednesday um we uh we were talking before the news about the funeral today for queen elizabeth i'm not going to spend a lot of time on that per se i i i I think a lot of the coverage and the side stories about the royal family is a lot of fluff but but i do take her and her life seriously and i i i've tried to make the case over these last several days that if you can set aside the kind of you know uh real housewives of the royal family gossip she is uh, representative of something that we're all. It's like a. It's like a, a foundation we're all standing on. You know, when you and I say something is right or wrong, when you and I rely on something like property law, or uh, human rights, or religious freedom, those are all facets of Western civilization. It's easy to go after the failings of Western civilization. It's easy to go after the times that Western Civ got it wrong or showed an ugly side or didn't live up to its own ideals, kind of like the history of our country. You can find warts. They're, they're there. And there are people that seize upon those, and they want to make that the whole story. But if you take the soda straw away from your eye, Western civilization has been the civilizing, economically uplifting, culturally enriching force of modern mankind. Queen Elizabeth was an ardent defender of it and a representative of it. She was, in fact, a product of it. You know, you can say, well, she has nothing in common with me, or she lived a life I can't even imagine, but she came out of a tradition that valued certain things and upheld them. And I don't know if the people who come after her, kings or queens or whatever they are, do. I don't know. I have my questions. Bill Maher did a commentary on his show the other day about the... uh, 
idea that history is not fan fiction. He says, you know, at times both liberals and conservatives have tried to whitewash history or bend it to their will, but the current effort to do that is definitely coming from the left. He talked about something we've talked about on this show called presentism, where we take historical figures or events and judge them by the present. In other words, the HR department today wouldn't have approved of what Thomas Jefferson did or or, or what have you. And it's not that simple. It is not easy to say, well, they should have known that was wrong when they were doing it, or how could they have done that? And even if you still want to say that, I'll come back to the, the, the basic underpinning argument, which is that warts and all, faults and all, failings and all, this thing that we are currently in the process of destroying and tearing down is something that the, the likes of which human beings have never produced before, never produced so much art and technology and progress. And if we let the people that are throwing paint and throwing rocks and lighting it on fire, if we let them have their way, if, 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 if they get to the top of the hill and plant their flag, what do you think life will be like under them? Do you think you'll be better off? you think you'll, you'll be relieved that that damned Queen Elizabeth is gone? I don't think so. They've shown you who they are. They've shown you a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of malice, a lot of hatred. They're not builders. They don't create things. They don't put up monuments or even find things worthy of monuments. They just know how to tear them down. They know, they know what shouldn't be there, but they have no idea what should be. Anyway, 210-599-5555. What's your thoughts on that? We've been talking about the, is the pandemic over? Because the president blurted that out on 60 Minutes. And, and I think we've all known all along that the way we the way we live, the way we live our lives, the, the decisions we make, the things we do, that was really going to determine when it was over. I think we knew from pretty early on, at least I did, and I think you probably did too, that we weren't going to get some kind of, um, you know, all's clear from the politicians. They were enjoying the moment too much. They were enjoying the opportunities of a crisis too much. It, it's probably worth remembering when they declare other crises probably something to watch from now on if you didn't already know this a lot of politicians like to declare one but they're not as big on ending them declaring a crisis is also assuming powers and building yourself up you need me you better listen to me hang on my every word declaring a crisis over is an act of of, of humility, it's an act of resignation, it's an act of saying, you know what, um, I've done my part, and back to you. And they don't want to do that. A lot of them don't want to do that. I don't want to say they're all Democrats either. So what do you think? I think it's over because we've 
decided it's over. What would you say? You may know the name, you may not. Uh, Lila Rose uh, has been on our show before. She's a young woman who um, is today one of the most outspoken uh, opponents of abortion and founded an outfit called Live Action. She came to our attention some years ago when she did an undercover, uh, I guess you'd say an undercover investigation of or penetration of uh, Planned Parenthood, where uh, she was able to get them uh, to admit to some of their more uh, disgusting practices. She went in as a, she's a very young-looking woman, and she went in as a supposedly uh, pregnant teenage girl who had been uh, impregnated by a man much older and therefore be statutory rape and proceeded to expose the fact that Planned Parenthood paid no attention to that and actually told her to lie about her age so they didn't have to report it to police. So she has been front and center in this fight for a long time. I think she's probably about 30 now. The other day she was on the TV show Dr. Phil, along with a bunch of people that are pro-abortion. And she got a pretty hard time with them and with Dr. Phil, but I want you to hear this exchange because I think it's I think it's really interesting to see somebody go into the arena and not only hold their own, but even more. So this is from a few days ago, the Dr. Phil show and the anti-abortion activist Lila Rose. Take a listen. The predicate of your positions that life begins at fertilization, that science is very clear about that. And you have to know science isn't, there's no consensus among the scientific community. There is, that, Dr. Phil. 96% no, actually, of scientists not. say that I, life begins at fertilization. If you're an in vitro specialist, well, no, you're let, looking to create let me, let me a single-cell embryo, and then you know you have a new human life. So it, it is a scientific fact. Well, actually, it's not. Well, when, do you, when do you say human life begins then? There's, well, it doesn't matter what I think. I, I, I don't care what I think. What I'm saying is well, the scientific is- community does not have a consensus about when life begins. It's simply inaccurate. It's simply inaccurate. That's not true. You can go to the body... A single-cell embryo is a unique new human life. You can go to the body of scientific literature, and you can find neuroscientists who say that it begins when there is a detectable... Brainwave. But Dr. Phil, in to, an abortion, if it's not a human life, why do you have to kill it? I haven't spoken over you, and you keep speaking over me, and I assume that's because you don't want me to finish my thought, which is, if anyone here wants to fact-check me instead of speak over me, you can go to the scientific literature and query what the definition is of the beginning of life and you will find that there are different definitions and it's up to you to decide what you think um her point it seemed to me was not just what she believes but that there is broad recognition of the fact that human life begins at fertilization. And she used as an example 
man playing God. When man plays God and creates a human life in the test tube or whatever the terminology is, I guess it's not literally a test tube, the, the, the sort of victory flag is, is fertilization. Life has begun. We, we're, we've succeeded. If that's what man playing God believes, and I don't know, she says 96% of 5,600 biologists from 1,000 institutions, I'm not sure where that comes from, but, but I, think the, I think the strong argument is when we create life, that's our finish line. So why is that not the finish line when life occurs? And then I think the other thing that's interesting is her her quibble with him is that there is no consensus. It's kind of a default position for the pro-abortion crowd, right? They used to be able to say it's a lump of cells, it's a mass, right? But they can't really say that anymore. I mean, some of them still do, but but it's hard with the technology we have and what we've seen of life in the womb, it's pretty darn hard. You've got to be a pretty cold-hearted person to look at those images and go, well, that's nothing but a bunch of cells that happen to look like a tiny human being. I, I give her a tremendous amount of credit because, you see, it's so easy to talk about this stuff in a place, in a setting where everyone will agree. It's hard to do what she did. I have people ask me all the time. I had a gentleman uh, in the first hour of the show today. He was talking about dealing with young people in his life. He sounded pretty young himself, but he was saying, how do you reason with people that have drank the Kool-Aid? How do you reason with people, whether you're talking about Biden or you're defending capitalism or, or, or whatever your, your cause is, maybe you're debating the governor's race or whatever it is, how do you reason with young people who are sure they know and um, refuse to listen to your argument. And my, I don't have a, a masterful answer for that, but I do think part of the answer is be very specific, point to the most obvious flaw in their argument, or point out something they are not seeing, like she's doing with Dr. Phil. I mean, Dr. Phil's a an intimidating guy, right? He's been on television for decades, and he's one of Oprah's apostles. And, you know, I mean, he he comes across as very um, authoritative. I don't know if he is or not. I don't know much about him, but um, very calm, very dispassionate, just kind of drops the mic on him. So it's not only a good presentation in the the subject area, it's, it's really a pretty good model for how to, have this discussion about anything, right? 210-599-5555. So there was a a question we were asking on the show last week, I forget what day it was, about why there is so much anger or hatred, open hatred. Why is bigotry against Mormon people so socially acceptable? It's even funny or cool to be not only... uh, not only to mock Mormons, but really to lie about them, to to uh, attribute to them things they don't do or beliefs they don't have. Anyway, so over the weekend, 
one of the highest profile football games in college football was Oregon and BYU. And at one point during the game, some Oregon fans, I don't want to say all of them, or probably not even most of them, are chanting in the stadium, F the Mormons. F the Mormons. Everybody is saying the right things today. Everybody who should is uh, decrying it, condemning it, slamming it, apologizing for it, including, but not limited to, uh, the University of Oregon. It's just, it's interesting to me. I, I don't mean to sound cruel, like I'm interested, but I don't care. I care, but I'm also just puzzled as to how that's allowed to happen. I have some familiarity with it because Catholics get some of this. Jews get some of this. But I will say with Catholics and Jews, there is a little more discomfort or a little more, you know, shushing of people. People are people get corrected a little faster. But with Mormons, I don't know. It's right out there in the open. And... um I guess it remains an open question. I, I've had people try to explain it. I haven't heard anything that, that quite adds up for me yet. But um, if you're a member of any religious community, it should always be of some interest to you what happens to members of other religious communities because, as the saying goes, you know, today it's them, tomorrow it could be me. KTSA News Time 639. A few minutes away from the results on our JR poll. President Biden telling 60 Minutes the pandemic is over, which was not only uh, news to 60 Minutes, it was news to the Biden administration. Uh, so much of what they're doing is predicated on the pandemic. And President Unity just took that off the table. Well, they're going to walk it back and they're going to say, he didn't mean it the way you think, but that, that's what he said. And in fact, he's right. I mean, it is over. It's over because a pandemic is something that happens to a lot of people. So it's going to be over when a lot of people's reactions to it change. It's not a government program. It's not a light switch you can flip on and off. It's not a button that I have control over and no one else does. They didn't understand that from the beginning. They got a remarkable amount of buy-in and, and frankly, obedience from an American people that are not usually that, you know, voluntarily obedient. I mean, you think back to the early days, I'm talking like March, April, May of 2020, think about all the things you watched people do out of the goodness of their hearts closed their businesses, closed their churches. And we can debate, and we have debated, the constitutionality and even the rationality of doing those things. But what I'm saying at the moment is just that when people were told, hey, you need to do things you never thought you would do, it's important, it matters, 
It could save lives. People did it. But that was a long time ago, and a lot has happened since then. And yes, people have watched and observed a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of bad science, a lot of cult of personality. I'm looking at you, Dr. Fauci. And they've moved on. They've put this behind them. And when you put something behind them, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. Your past is real. You lived it, but you've put it behind you. That's what it is, I think. That, that would be my answer. 210-599-5555. Congratulations to Becky Hammond. I know I heard this in the sports cast. Becky Hammond, who was the assistant coach for Greg Popovich, went to the WNBA and did something no WNBA coach has ever done. She won the championship in her first year, her rookie year as a coach, as her Las Vegas Aces defeated the Connecticut Suns for the WNBA title. First WNBA coach to win as a rookie. A lot of people speculated that she would be promoted in the NBA. I wonder if this makes that more or less likely. Is this like a different track that she's on now, or does this mean that at some point she comes back to the NBA? I think it's hilarious that Greg Popovich and the Spurs are so... You know, they're so enlightened and they're so modern man. And, you know, here was a woman with with obvious coaching chops, tremendous talent. And Pop has to hang on for another year. (laughs) I mean, you've got an obvious heir apparent, players respect her, media lover. Fans are enthusiastic about her. You'd see her. You'd see her at the AT and T Center. It was like seeing a rock star. But it's funny how liberals they talk a really good game about being the best friend for women and women's advancement or people of color. Isn't it interesting how many bitter, angry white men cling to power, run for yet another term in office? Why wouldn't you? want to step aside for these people you claim to be so enlightened about and interested in promoting. Just curious. 210-599-5555. You you may or may not know this. I I follow him on Twitter. Pat Sajak, the Wheel of Fortune guy, is kind of a political guy. He's, He's pretty conservative. I don't know if he's nominally a Republican, but he's pretty conservative. If you didn't know this, you probably would like a lot of what Pat Sajak says and thinks. But anyhow, he's um, embroiled in online controversy. I'm doing air quotes. Because he posed for a photo with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the Georgia Hitler. She's the Republican congresswoman from Georgia, who's kind of kind of nutty, but uh, very, um, you know, very pro-Trump and what have you. And so they were at an event, and uh, he took a picture with her. It's one of those pictures you get with a celebrity. I've got them. That clearly is just like people lined up. So when you show a picture of yourself with a television person or a movie person or whatever, 
you know that you stood in line and they took 200 of those pictures. But when you show people the picture, it looks like you were out on the town. You spent all night together. I, I would imagine it was probably like she waited, she stood with him, she took a picture. I, I don't know. But I, I find it funny that we have um, turned stuff like this into gotcha moments. If you're in a picture with someone, that doesn't mean you are in a plot with them or you're conniving with them or colluding with them. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're actually in cahoots with somebody, you probably don't take any pictures. So if there's like some vast Charlottesville conspiracy going on, if Pat Sajak was at a secret you know, white nationalism gathering with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not saying he was. Of course he wasn't. <laughs> but, I mean, whatever their, whatever their fever dreams are about moments like this, if there's a picture, it's probably nothing. It's the people they meet with that we don't have pictures of that you need to worry about. It's all the pictures Hunter Biden is not in that I would worry about. On the JR poll, it was unanimous. President Biden says the pandemic is over. Hey, did you ever think there would be a poll question in our show? Questioning or asking you about something Joe Biden said and everyone would agree with him? They said it could never happen. Here we are. It happened. Um, I saw on the news over the weekend um, an actor named Henry Silva passed away. And um, that is not a household name anymore, but it, it caught my eye because Henry Silva was in two of my all-time favorite movies, just coincidentally. Um, he is the last, or was until he passed away, the last surviving star of the original Ocean's Eleven. And um, he was also with Frank Sinatra in a movie called The Manchurian Candidate. There was a remake of that more recently with Denzel Washington, but I'm talking about the original 1962 uh, Manchurian Candidate. He made several other movies. He passed away at the age of 95. His death was announced by Deanna Martin, uh, Dean Martin's daughter, who called Henry Silva, quote, one of the nicest, kindest, and most talented men I've ever had the pleasure of calling my friend. He was the last surviving star of the original Ocean's Eleven cast. Frank Sinatra saw him in a movie called A Hatful of Rain where he played a drug dealer. And Henry Silva's most, probably most salient attribute was his appearance. You, Even if you're not recognizing this name right now, if I could show you a picture of him, you would say, oh, I've definitely seen him before. Uh, in a number of movies throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, Don Cooper was mentioning Sharky's Machine, which he made with Burt Reynolds in 1981. He was 95 years old. I um, Not to take anything away from the Denzel remake, but you have to see, if you've never seen the original Manchurian Candidate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that if you listen to this show, you have some passing interest in politics and history. Manchurian Candidate is a movie that you watch and then you think. It makes you think about... Everything we see 
what's really behind the politics that play out in front of us, how much of it is... I mean, think about it. This is a movie that's 60 years old. And it was made before the Internet, cable television, the 24-hour news cycle. But it, And it was made at a moment of international crisis. It actually came out in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it was made in that very tense political year of 1962. And um, it involves a, a young man who has been uh, captured on the battlefield in the Korean War and reprogrammed by the communists as a sleeper agent in the United States. And it's an incredible cast. You've got Frank Sinatra, you've got Angela Lansbury, a great actor, Lawrence Harvey, who passed away way too soon. One of the cool and weird things about Manchurian Candidate, by the way, um, Angela Lansbury plays Lawrence Harvey's mother. He, so he's the Manchurian Candidate. And she is this very ambitious wife of a Joe McCarthy-type senator. And Lawrence Harvey is uh, her son. Not the senator's son, but her son. Anyway, in the scenes between them, and I know that other people have said this, I'm not the only one that's noticed this, there is a kind of weird, is this his mother or his lover kind of, uh, you know, quality. And she is only like a year or two older than him in this movie but somehow it it just works uh, there's a lot of other icky kind of subplots and connotations and uh, what have you um, there's all kinds of weird behind the scenes stuff I saw an interview with Angela Lansbury where she said that in one of the climactic scenes she has a scene where she is face to face with Lawrence Harvey their faces are like an inch apart and he is leaning back in a chair, and she is, you know, yelling at him and lecturing him about what he must do. And he is stifling a cough, she reveals in the interview. In this entire scene, he's very sick. He got a cold. And the whole, when you watch that scene now, it's fascinating to watch because he's sweating and he's quivering a little bit. And it's because he's about to cough and he doesn't want to ruin the take. But all kinds of weird things happened during the movie. I think Frank Sinatra broke his arm or broke his wrist or something while they were making it. There's, there's mistakes that were left in the movie because they were filming it quickly. Sinatra had a very short window. So there's a couple of scenes where the focus is off, like it's out of focus, but they didn't have time to shoot it again, so they just left it in there. An amazing movie. And um, Henry Silva, part of that history. And, and, of course, Ocean's Eleven is a really cool movie, too. I think... I think Ocean's Eleven probably set the table for all these Fast and Furious movies and all these other big ensemble crime caper movies that we have these days. There's so many of them. So rest in peace, Henry Silva. Thank you for listening. I will not be here tomorrow. Back live on Wednesday. Find the show anytime on demand. Jack Riccardi, page KTSA.com.